Good morning, church. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, that's page um, 810 in the Bibles around the room. We'll be in verses 38 through 48 today. And I'll read the scripture, and then when I'm done, um, I'll say, this is the reading of God's word, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we just respond that way because we are grateful that he will reveal himself today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But anyone, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise and on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. Lord, you are perfect. You are holy. You are set apart. Thank you for clothing us in your son's perfection. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who bears all our iniquities to death so that we may wear his cloak of righteousness and be united to our God. Lord, help us to be wise, to seek your counsel in all that we do. Lord, help us to love as you do. Let us be reflections of your mercy and truth. God, be with us this morning as we seek to know you. Open our hearts and minds and speak through Pastor Kyle today as he moves through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you, Casey. It was a beautiful prayer. Well, good morning, church. We doing? My name's Kyle, and uh, if you're a guest to Living Stones, welcome to Living Stones. It's really an honor to have you here. Uh, one of the things that we believe about uh, uh, God is that God is constantly revealing himself to us. But sometimes that's a journey to get to know him. And so you might be here as somebody who has a lot of questions. You might be here as somebody uh, you have a lot of maybe skepticisms about Christianity. And I just want you to know you're welcome here. And you're welcome here with your questions. Uh, we invite that. And we're not going to force you to do things you're uncomfortable with doing. You can keep coming here as long as you want and asking those questions. Our hope is that you really would meet the living God. And so we're in uh, Matthew chapter 5 today. And we're studying the famous sermon of Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you don't have a Bible, open there. Grab one of the Bibles around the room, and that's going to be on page five, 810. And um, today, Jesus gets up in our grill, doesn't he? If you paid attention to the reading. He is going to just go straight to some of the most difficult things we have trouble with in our hearts. And what Jesus is doing in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is he's showing us what it looks like when his kingdom of light intersects with the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of evil of this world. What does kingdom living look like in a broken world? That's what the Sermon 
on the Mount is all about. And really what he's calling for his people is he's calling for a revolution. Uh, It was funny, I was studying this text in Portland on Wednesday. I was in Portland for an Acts 29, which is our church planting network. Uh, I was there for a a leadership thing where we were praying and strategizing how to take over the world with churches. And um, I had some time on on Wednesday morning, and so I went to a coffee shop on the corner. And the coffee shop was a, a Latino coffee shop called Revolucion. And I'm sitting there drinking my coffee and I'm reading this and just being, Jesus is just like, just dissecting all the grossness of my heart. And, and I'm sitting underneath all these pictures of revolutionaries on the wall. And what I realized is that Jesus here is calling for a revolution. He's calling for his people to, his people to be people of light, to overthrow the kingdom of darkness of this world and to do it not with hate, but with love. Um, this passage that we're studying today greatly influenced Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, his, what, his work during the civil rights movement. And he said this, hate begets hate, violence begets violence, toughness begets greater toughness. But we must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. We must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. In other words, as Jesus is talking about what it looks like for this revolution from heaven to come down, if I were to be a poet, this is how I'd say it. The revolution that comes from above happens when we meet the forces of hate with the power of love. That's the call of the Christian. To meet the forces of hate with the power of love. And it requires three things from us. Extreme selflessness, inclusive love, and absolute dependence. So that's the points for the sermon today. So let's talk about the first one. Extreme selflessness, verse 38. If you're new to the Bible, by the way, the verses in your Bible are the little numbers and the chapters are the big numbers. Jesus says in verse 38, You've heard it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So he's saying, you've heard it said. So basically what you need to know about this is Jesus is confronting a false teaching. These these teachers, these pharisaical teachers of what other people were saying about God's word. And Jesus is correcting them. And he's claiming absolute authority. He's claiming that he has more authority than the teachers of the day because he says, you heard it say, said, but I say to you. In other words, he's saying, my teaching surpasses all man's teaching. And what was going on is, is this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It is a phrase in the Old Testament. And it was a phrase given to government. But uh, the false teachers were, were applying it not in a government sense, they were applying it in a personal sense. So it was a phrase given to government to uh, give instruction on how the Israeli government, the Hebrew people, were supposed to uh, judge people in the court of law. So an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So basic thing is the, the punishment should fit the crime. And what Jesus, God gave that, that, uh, that command because he was trying to present life from spinning out of control because God knew that like a blood feud could exist. So for example, if, 
if there was one member of one tribe who hurt another member of another tribe, let's say they got in a fight and one guy got a black eye. Well, then the other guy would retaliate by going and break the other guy's legs. Then that family would retaliate by murdering. And so what Jesus gave as instruction for God's people governmentally is that they were supposed to do an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So in other words, the punishment should fit the crime. And this was to prevent things like blood feuds from happening. But what had happened is at the time of Jesus' day, the teachers twisted this, and they, and they weren't teaching now about um, civil authority. Now they were applying it to personal authority. And they were basically saying, you have every right to retaliate against somebody if they hurt you. And that's never what it was intended to be. And so that's why Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So again, Jesus is talking personally. He's not talking civilly. There are civil authorities that are good that we praise God for, that even the New Testament in Romans chapter 13 acknowledges as good things, like police and military and the judicial system. Those things are supposed to resist evil. But when Jesus says, you do not resist evil, he's speaking at a personal and relational level. Does that make sense? And so he's really calling us to personally and relationally pick up our cross and die to ourselves for the sake of others. Meet hate with love. And he gives four examples. The first example is a very common one. Um, you've heard this before. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn to him the other also. Now, what's he getting at? Um, Jesus is certainly not saying if you're in an abusive situation, to not defend yourself. He's not saying that. Um, he's not saying if, if you have to run away, like, don't run away. A slap on the right cheek in Jesus' time was one of the most uh, dishonoring things you could do to another person in public. And what it was is you would take your right hand and you would backhand them on the right cheek. So, whoosh, right on the right cheek. And that was a public way to insult and demean somebody. And so what Jesus is saying is, if somebody insults you, don't feel the need to retaliate. Instead, turn the other cheek. And a turning of the other cheek in his day was an extension of peace and friendship because when you greeted somebody, you would turn your cheek and you'd kiss them on the cheek. So what is Jesus saying? Instead of taking retaliation into your own hands, the Christian ought to, when they're insulted, seek peace and friendship. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? The next example that he gives is, he says, uh, if someone were to sue you and take your tunic, give to them your cloak as well. So if someone were to wrongly accuse you and take stuff that belongs to you, like your t-shirt, you need to give them your coat as well. They say, give me your t-shirt. You're like, how about my coat too? You want them both? The next example, he says, if someone forces you to go one mile, what you need to do is go with them two miles. And this was because Roman soldiers could enter into any town that they occupied and they could grab a citizen and they could make that citizen carry their luggage for one mile. And Jesus says, this is how my people ought to live. They should embrace the embarrassment of carrying it one mile. Then they should say to the soldier, want me to carry it another mile? Let's go. 
That's really what it means by saying go the extra mile. We talk about it in terms of customer service. Man, they really went the extra mile. But Jesus is talking about this um, as a way of embracing the insults, embracing the embarrassment that's coming your way. It's extreme selflessness. And then the next uh, two examples, he says this. He says, um, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. (laughs) Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I was talking with Pastor Harvey, the lead pastor at the Reno Living Stones, and he said, man, from this verse, that's why I carry $1 bills in my pocket because um, I always pass by people who are begging, and, you know, this is what Jesus says to do. So I, I just, and I'm like, that's exactly why I don't carry $1 bills in my pocket. <laughs> and I'm like, this just exposes how jacked up my heart is because what's the real thing going on in my head? Because I'm like, oh, no, they're going to use that, and then they're going to go buy drugs, and they're going to just waste it away. They don't want to work. I'm coming up with all these excuses, and what is Jesus calling us to? He says, no, 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 don't worry about them. You worry about being obedient to me. I'll worry about them. You worry about being gracious. You worry about being a servant, not the results. And that undoes all of us, all of us. Okay, now you might say it's wiser to carry around. Uh, I was talking with uh, Dom. He carries cliff bars with him. That's a good thing. Might be wiser to carry around like food certificates, whatever. But we do need to be prepared as God's people to give to those who beg from us. Because the mark of the kingdom is generosity. Now, you need to understand, we tend to read this as Westerners with a guilt-innocence lens, but Easterners would have heard this in an honor-shame lens. And in an honor-shame lens, every single one of these things that happened were purposeful ways to shame another individual. And what Jesus is saying is, my people will embrace the shame for the sake of love. It's a call to meet the forces of hate with the power of love. The kingdom of heaven is made visible when you're more concerned with serving others than you are with defending your honor. The kingdom of heaven is made visible when you're more concerned with serving others than you are defending your honor. One of the most common or a frequent illustration that God uses for his people in the Old Testament, is he calls his people who really cling to him trees. Kind of weird. And if you think about uh, some of the references to these trees, it says that when we cling to God, we can be deeply rooted and we can weather any storm. But if you also think about what a tree is, a tree has a posture of self-sacrifice. And it reminds me of that children's book, The Giving Tree by Silverstein. And the basic idea is if you think about a tree, especially a big, strong tree, a tree by nature is always giving. Uh, it's giving oxygen. It's giving shade. You have a fruit tree. It's giving delicious fruit. Um, even when things come against it and seek to cut it down, it still gives. You cut it, it's, it's giving space. It's giving 
It's wood to be provided for fire or to cook on, or, or it's being used as um, building materials, or even if it's just a stump, it can be used to be sit upon. And I think it's interesting that God calls his people trees, because what he wants us to be is he wants us to be rooted in him, able to weather any storm, and he wants his people to have a constant posture of self-sacrifice. And that's what it takes to meet hate with love. And what this is, is it's a call to hold all these things that he mentions with an open hand. If you notice what these attacks are, a slap on the cheek was an attack against your reputation. People pursuing you and taking your tunic, that was an attack on your rights. Causing you to go one mile, that was an attack on your comfort. And begging from you is an attack on your possessions. And Jesus says, if you're going to be committed to him, you hold on to him and you hold all those things with an open hand. Your ability to be selfless is directly correlated on whether or not you're holding your reputation, your rights, your comforts, and your possessions with an open hand. If you're holding them with a closed hand, you're never going to give yourself away, and you won't meet hate with love. So he continues. So the first thing we need is extremely selflessness. The second thing we need is inclusive love. So he continues in the next verse. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So let's stop there. So Jesus is quoting a common teaching. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now, the teachers got it partially right. What does it say in the book of Leviticus? Love your neighbor. Does it say hate your enemy? No. But the people, the teachers had added on. Well, if we only have to love our neighbors, that must mean we get to hate our enemies because they're not our neighbors. And what they did is they added this phrase, hate your enemy, and they added it with separatist and racist undertones. And so for the Jewish people, what this meant is you got to hate people who didn't look like you, who were Gentiles or Romans. It was a way for them to excuse their political hate of the Roman Empire. Um, But they also got to hate those who hurt you. So they would say stuff like this. Well, they aren't my people. I'm under no obligation to love them, especially if they hurt me. But Jesus here redefines who our neighbor is. He says, who's your neighbor? Even your enemy is your neighbor. And so that's what he he says in the next verse. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. And so he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Now, this is interesting because earlier in verse 9 of chapter 5, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And what a son was in this ancient culture, it was a representation of the family. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be the one who represents God on earth, here's what it means. You have to love your enemies. And you have to pray for those who persecute you. Those who love their enemies, those who pray for those who persecute them, they accurately represent God's heart in this broken world. He says, because for for God makes his son rise on the evil and good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying the reason I want you to love your enemies is because this is what God is doing all the time. God is in the business of loving all people. And in the Greek, the word all means all. <laughs> all people. Not just those who are reciprocating love back to him. And aren't you thankful for this? Because what does the scripture say about us before we meet Christ? That we were enemies of God. Now, if you're somebody who's not a Christian, you might say, I'm not an enemy of God. Well, if you don't want him in your life, if you reject him, and, and if he's a king and you want to be the king of your own life, technically that's the term of an enemy. And all of us were enemies. There's nobody in here and there's nobody in heaven that gets to heaven because they were good. We get to heaven because God is gracious. We were all enemies. And, and thankfully, God didn't smite us on the spot while we were enemies. What did he do? Romans 5 says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And here, Jesus just represents the just different little things that God is doing. He says that God makes the sun rise on the good and the evil, and he gives rain to the just and the unjust. In other words, God has given all these common graces, these things that all of us get to enjoy, sun and rain, and for them that was their livelihood because they lived off the crops. God gives all these things to good people and to bad. What makes you think you have the right to withhold any good from anybody? If you want to represent God, you have to be inclusive with your love. You see, the, the teachers of the day had redefined love in exclusive terms. They said, we don't have to love people who we don't like. We don't have to love people who don't look like us. We don't have to love people who have hurt us. But the way that God views love is in inclusive terms because God loves all people. There's not one individual, there's not one human who has, God has not bestowed his love. He loves all people. And Jesus even says, what makes your love special? If we're calling for a revolution here, how is your love any special than others if all you do is love the people who love you back? And he says, don't the unbelievers and the notorious sinners do the same? Like gangsters love those who love them back. Like Evil people love those who love them back. What makes you as the church, what's going to make your love stand out different from theirs if all you do is love people who love you back? And so what he tells us is he tells us three things about love. The first is this. Love is a choice, not just an emotion. I know we talk about like, I fell in love but if you can fall in love, you can also fall out of love. But the way that God views love is as a choice. It's not rooted in like warm fuzzies. I'm pretty sure as Jesus was dying on the cross, he was not having a bunch of warm fuzzies for us. He chose to stay on the cross even though it hurt him terribly. And I think it's interesting that Jesus gives us this action of pray. He says, pray for those who persecute you. 
or do violence against you or your character. See, prayer is not only an action of love, it's the anecdote for lack of love. I've never met a person who started praying for their enemies who didn't end up loving them. Have you? Love's a choice. And so if we're going to love, we need to be praying for our enemies. Then the second thing he acknowledges is, look, love hurts. Jesus is bringing this up because he knows how difficult it is. There's no such thing as true love without sacrifice. You can't say you really love someone if you only love them when things are easy and good and they don't do anything that hurts you. Love hurts. And let's be honest, the deeper the wound, the more difficult it is to love. And the deeper the wound, the more likely we are to exclude them from our love. But Jesus says, no, don't do that. Because it's better to respond with love than with hatred. Look at this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. He says, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so Dr. Martin Luther King, Jesus, they're acknowledging, look, it hurts, but if you give in to the hurt and, and, and exclude your enemies or strike out against your enemies, you're only creating more of a problem. The only thing to overflow, the, overpower the forces of evil is with the power of love. But love hurts. Then lastly, the, the third thing that Jesus tells us about love is this, is love's focus is on the person, not the result. Notice how there's no results here in what Jesus says. He doesn't say, love your enemies, and then all your enemies will become Christians. He doesn't say, pray for those who persecute you, and then they'll stop persecuting you. It's not focused on the result. It's focused on the person. Because if your love for somebody is only focused on the result, you've just made them a project, and you really don't care about them. It's focused on the person. I think this is shown for us really well if you read the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a spy and a Christian um, who wouldn't refuse preaching the gospel during the time of World War II. And because of that, he was thrown into a Nazi prison camp. And he would, uh, he would be praying while the Allied troops are bombing the prison camps and bombing all the areas. He would gather the prisoners and they would hold hands and he would pray for them. And then they didn't have any food because they were starving them. So they would imagine communion and he would administer them communion. Imagine <laughs> But then this became such a big thing that the guards started coming to him and he would do the same thing for the guards. The same ones who were torturing him. And he didn't know whether or not they were going to become Christians. He just knew that God was calling him to love them in that moment. And that's what God is calling you to do and me to do. So my question for you is this, is who is God asking you to love? 
Who is it that has deeply hurt you that you've excluded out of your life? Who is it that you're not even paying attention to? Do you realize that there's people you might walk past every day that you don't even pay attention because you're not even thinking about loving others? And who do you need to start praying for? What enemies do you need to start praying for? Political enemies? If you're a Republican, when's the last time you prayed for the Democrats? If you're a Democrat, when's the last time you prayed for the Republicans? And for both parties, not just that the other would repent. (laughs) When's the last time you prayed for ISIS? When's the last time you prayed for the person that you got that got you fired? If you've been divorced, when's the last time you've prayed for your ex? This is what God is asking us to do. And he says he wants us to do this because this is what he's doing for all people all the time. I read a quote this week that said this, to return hate for good, that's devilish. To return good for good, that's human. To return good for evil, that's divine. God is inviting us into living this divine life. A life that brings the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of this world. And so the last thing that it's going to take, first takes extreme selflessness, then it takes inclusive love. The last thing it takes is absolute dependence. Look at how Jesus closes this section of his sermon. Verse 48, it's a very encouraging verse. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is how you do it, people. Be perfect. He's not saying this, though. You need to understand. He's not saying this because he thinks you can get there. He's not saying, you know, if you really dig deep, If you really reach in and just grab the light within. If you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you got this, buddy. Be perfect. That's not what he's saying. What's he doing here? Why does he close this section of the sermon like this? Because he's trying to get us to understand that our only hope in doing this is to admit that we can't. That's the irony of Christianity. Your only hope to actually follow Jesus in in obedience is to admit that you suck at it. And you can't. What he's doing for us here is he's just undoing any like just minute little thing of self-reliance that we might have. He's saying, you got here's my standard, perfection. And at that moment, what he's expecting is all of our self-reliance to die. He says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect because he's trying to reduce us down to jelly, as Paul says. He wants us to just admit, we got nothing. And if we're gonna be this kind of people, our only hope as we sit at the feet of Jesus is to admit that we need him to do this for us and we need him to do this in us. You can't do this on your own. Christianity is not about having more effort. It's about having more need. 
And isn't Jesus the perfect embodiment of this passage? They force you to go one mile, go two. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And what did they do to our Lord? The last 24 hours of the life of his life shows us more vividly than anything. They punched him in the face and mocked him. Imagine being a soldier, punching the creator of the universe in the face and saying, if you're God, show us. Prophesy when this next punch is going to come. Boom. They gave him black eyes. They ripped out his beard. They spat in his face. And even when they nailed him to the wood on the cross, as the nail went through his hands, what did he cry out? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You see, he was perfectly showing us what it looks like to meet hate with love. And because of that, millions were saved. You know, it's been said by thousands of preachers. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was his love. He could have got off any time he wanted. But he chose to stay there. Because our sins needed to be atoned for. And, and, and somebody had to die for them. And this is why guys like Napoleon had said, I know Jesus, and Jesus is no mere man. Like, I know men. He's like me and Charlemagne and these other guys. We've established our empires, but how did we do it? We did it by force. But Jesus has established an empire on love, and to this day, millions of people would die for him. And so what Jesus is doing here at the end of the passage when he says, here's how you do this, you need to be perfect, is he's trying to drive us to complete and utter need of him. You know, a lot of Christians will tell you, Jesus is all you need. You'll have that on a coffee cup. But here's the reality. He won't be all you need until you, re you realize that he's all you got. And that's what he's trying to get us at. He's setting the bar so high that there's no possible way any person can look and say, yeah, I got good stuff to offer God. No, he sets the bar so high that he says, I got nothing. Because when you got nothing, then you need him. And when you need him, you actually have the capability to do this because he starts doing it through you. Because the irony of this is, look, if you need other things, you'll never do this. If you need reputation you're never going to turn the other cheek. If you need comfort, you're never going to go the extra mile. If you need possessions, you're never going to give to those who beg from you. If you need retaliation, you're never going to pray for your enemies. But if you need Jesus, then you can do all of those things. He's driving us to this point where we absolutely need him. So, if you're in here and you're new to this whole Bible thing, do you realize your need? Do you realize what God expects from all of us? Do you see how there's no way that you could do this on your own? And do you see that Jesus has come to offer you himself so that he might do this in you? There is forgiveness for your wrongs in Christ. And there's also empowerment so that you can live this life of Christ. And if you've been a Christian for a while, have you stopped waking up in the morning asking God to help you? Have you started going about your days trying to do this whole Christian living thing on your own? I have a really simple word for you. Stop. 
and admit your need before your Lord because he wants to help you. Look, we all want a revolution, don't we? We all want to see masses of people come to know the living God. Some might call that a revolution. Others might call that a revival. But it's funny how we talk about revival. We think if we can get better preachers, better music, and if we can be hip and cool as a church and do cool sermon series and have sweet art, oh, then we'll invite people to church. Isn't that how we invite people to church? Oh, you got to come. The music's great. Oh, it's a bunch of really cool people. They're all really hip. <laughs> That's not how revival's going to happen. You want to know how revival's going to happen? Is when God's people start taking this stuff seriously. When we start loving our enemies, when we start praying for those who persecute us, then, and only then, will a revolution happen and the kingdom of darkness will be pushed back by the kingdom of light. So what I want to do to close this sermon out today is we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to read this passage over you again and we're going to sit in silence for a couple minutes. And I just want you to let the passage to do work on your heart. And the band's going to be playing behind some really moody, wonderful music. And I just want you to let this passage do work on your heart. And if you're not a Christian, here's the one question I would just want you to ask God. God, if you're real, please show yourself to me. And if you're not, and if you are a Christian, I want you to be asking God and, and really come to God. I, I, I charge you to have the courage to go before God and say, God, here's my heart. Show me what I need to work on. We're going to sit in silence and it's going to be awkward because it's awkward to have any kind of silence, let alone with a room full of people. <laughs> but just embrace the awkwardness for a moment and let God speak, all right? Jesus says to his disciples, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall not love your neighbor. Or you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be called sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father 